There are some 16 accounts about the life of the president of the Confederacy, the earliest in 1868, one of the more recent in 2002. Unlike his counterpart, Abraham Lincoln, this president, from the perspective of most historians, has not fared well. Brittle ill-tempered, one who held grudges, possessed poor political skills. In short, a second-rate leader who loved bureaucracy and was unable to grow with responsibility. When asked why the Confederacy lost the war, Southern-born David Potter, a professor of history at both Yale and Stanford universities, commented that this chief executive should shoulder much of the blame. Writing some two decades ago, another historian and biographer, William Cooper, Jr., wrote that we should look at a man from his time and not condemn him for not being a man of our time. Though that seems to fly in the face of current sensitivities and agendas, this is what we now shall attempt to do. This is the story of a man like Robert E. Lee. He was a marquee figurehead for a short-lived nation whose constitution supported states' rights and slavery. A man subjected to the bolts of lightning flung his way for being its elected leader. This is the story of the first and only president of the Confederate States of America, Jefferson F. Davis. The last five letters of history spell story. And that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. It was partly cloudy, cold, The temperature just above freezing that Monday, January 21st, 1861. Twelve days earlier, Mississippi became the second southern state to secede from the Union. Others followed. And now, on the 21st, before a packed U.S. Senate chamber and gallery, there were farewells. Two senators from Alabama and Florida were first. There was one more his name and character well-known, a West Pointer, adept politician, Mexican war hero, notable cabinet official. It was his turn to speak. Deliberately, the man the New York Times called the Cicero of the Senate rose from his chair. At five foot, 11 inches, Jefferson Davis was slender with erect military bearing. He had high, prominent cheekbones, hollow cheeks, thin lips, full, deep-set eyes that were intense and icy blue. One, however, the left, was covered with a film, the result of an eye disease. In truth, medical issues often dogged him. Recurring bouts of malaria and severe facial pain caused by neuralgia. But on this day... There was no sign of any of that, for when he rose, his presence commanded respect. The Declaration and Constitution were his political testaments, 
and his remarks were predicated upon their foundation. As he put it, he and the South have a belief that we are to be deprived in the union of the rights which our fathers have bequeathed to us. Though he believed that, the decision to leave the Union tortured him. It flew in the face of the nation that he knew and loved, nodding to several senators and admitting there had been points of collision. He reassured all that, I carry with me no hostile remembrances. He spoke for 15 minutes, every syllable absorbed. Many who listened were in tears. He concluded, It only remains for me to bid you a final adieu. Fully aware of the grave time, senators of both parties and geographic sections rushed forward to the five senators who were about to take their leave. Davis recalled his remarks that day were not merely words, but rather leaves torn from the book of fate. Afterwards, he told a friend, This is the saddest day of my life. Again, it was Monday, January 21st, 1861. He never forgot that day. For the rest of his life, in books that came into his possession, he placed his signature always on page 61. His journey began humbly. He came into this world June the 3rd, 1808, in Christian County, Kentucky. Some eight months earlier, and about 100 miles from another native Kentuckian, Abraham Lincoln. The future Confederate president was born to former revolutionary militiaman Samuel Emery Davis, who was in his early 50s, and 48-year-old Jane Cook Davis. With five brothers and four sisters, Jefferson was the tenth and last, hence his middle name, Fini, Latin for the end. Before he was two, they were 600 miles away in Bayou Teche, Louisiana, and less than a year later in Wilkinson County, Mississippi Territory. It was at that location that Davis later wrote, There my memories begin. He was fortunate. He had loving parents, older siblings, and attentive sisters. At the age of eight, he was shipped off by his Baptist father to a Roman Catholic school, St. Thomas's, back in Kentucky. This created some issues, for it was done without consulting his mother, and the boy left when she was not at home. There, at that school, he remained for two years. He returned in the late spring of 1818, and an older brother sent him alone into the house to see if his parents recognized him. He saw his mother sitting by the door, and in his words he said, I asked her if there had been any stray horses round here. She said she had seen a stray boy and swept him up in her arms. His father, who was out in the field, showered him with kisses. Soon yet, he was off to Jefferson College, six miles east of Natchez, another prep school, and then Wilkinson County Academy, where Bostonian John A. Shaw was an excellent instructor. There, Davis once felt he had 
too much to memorize. And when he was not prepared and admonished for it, he gathered his books and left. Finding him back at home, his father said, Of course, it is for you to elect whether you will work with head or hands. And he continued, My son cannot be an idler. I want more cotton pickers and will give you work. Needless to say, after two days in the sun, Davis was back in school. Of all his siblings, he was closest to his older brother, Joseph. He was a prominent lawyer and landowner in Natchez. 24 years his senior, Davis called Joseph my mentor and greatest benefactor. Meanwhile, education was a priority. At 14, Davis went to Transylvania University in Lexington, where Henry Clay sat as a trustee. He performed well there, although he struggled with math. In July of 1824, he learned of his father's passing back on the 4th. His death profoundly impacted him, and Joseph, for all practical purposes, became his surrogate father. His brother had contact with one very powerful John C. Calhoun. And as a rising senior at school, the young Davis was made aware through Calhoun's assistance there was an opportunity. Though Davis wrestled with the decision, off he went to the United States Military Academy. He arrived a 16-year-old plebe, September the 1st, 1824. His struggles with math continued and added to his academic challenges, science. So was the thing called following the rules. At West Point, 200 demerits in a year meant expulsion. In his last year, Davis accumulated 137, which placed him 163rd out of 208 in conduct. He amassed them for noise during study time, failure to police his room, inattention at drill, and long hair. Some were more serious. Absence from drill, parade, and laboratory, and firing a musket out a window. Three were even more serious, and all involved alcohol. Two of them, thanks to Benny Haven's Tavern. Cadet Edgar Allan Poe wrote that tavern keeper Havens was, as Poe put it, the sole congenial soul in the entire God-forsaken place. Once in August of 1826, Davis and a friend were there at Benny Havens. Warned of a coming instructor, they fled by way of a shortcut that led up a steep path. In his hurry, Davis stumbled and fell some 60 feet below, grabbing a small tree to break his fall. He survived, but mangled one hand. While at the academy, he made friends with future Confederate generals Albert Sidney Johnston and Leonidas Polk. In the class of 1828, he graduated 23rd out of 33, one class ahead of Robert E. Lee and Joseph E. Johnston. Commissioned Brevet Second Lieutenant of Infantry on July 1, 1828, Davis found himself at the Infantry School of Practice at Jefferson Barracks in Missouri. His duty required extensive travel, and quite honestly, he liked it, for he was able to explore the wilderness. 
Once, he escorted the captured Indian warrior Black Hawk back to Jefferson Barracks, and at Galena, Illinois, protected the warrior from gawking whites, according to the Salk leader and warrior. And as if foreshadowing his own future, Davis recognized, as he put it, what the Native Americans' own feelings would have been if he had been placed in a similar situation. When Davis turned 21, and obviously in the military, he thought, I should be on the highway to all ambition desired. Yet, that was not the case. He believed himself to be the same poor being that I was at 15. As a U.S. junior officer, he persevered for the next six and a half years at posts in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Arkansas territories. In March of 1835, he received a furlough. He never returned. Instead, at 26, he was on the path to becoming a gentleman planter. Brother Joseph made land available. But it is important to note, never extended a legal title. That would have consequences down the road. At Davis Bend on the Mississippi River, Joseph's place was named Hurricane Jefferson's Briarfield, and it had two and a half miles of river frontage and 900-plus acres. Its first productive cotton crop was in 1837, but something other than soil was fertile. His heart. He first met Sarah Knox Taylor, the daughter of Zachary Taylor, at Fort Crawford in Michigan Territory. Smitten, they were engaged in 1833, but both sets of parents nixed the proposed union. Ordered to Arkansas Territory, he was separated from her for two years, but their love survived the separation. In spite of parents' wishes, they, on June the 17th, 1835, were wed in Louisville. It may well have been an omen for parents of neither groom or bride attended. He brought her to Davis Bend, Mississippi, and shortly thereafter, on August the 11th, the two traveled to the home of his sister at West Feliciana Parish, Louisiana. There he contracted malaria. She, the next day. On September the 15th, 1835, after only three months of marriage, Sarah Knox Taylor Davis died at the age of 21. He, at 27, was shattered and threw himself into his place, Briarfield. Thanks in part to the profitable cotton crop in 1837, he amassed some 23 slaves, which by law made him a planter. Economically established, he turned to politics. In August of 1840, he became one of 100 Democratic delegates to the party's state convention. In 1843, he ran as a Democrat for the Mississippi State House, but lost. In December of that year, he lost something else. When headed to Vicksburg for a political meeting, he stopped to deliver a message to a 17-year-old house guest at the home of his older brother, Joseph. There he lost his heart to Verena Banks Howell. She was the daughter of old friend and New Jersey native William B. Howell, 
who in turn was the son of a New Jersey governor and now was living in Natchez. She was slim, of more than average height, striking dark hair and skin, broad nose, simple mouth, full lips, and quite educated. He, well, he was a Democrat, but she was a Whig. No matter, he wooed her, and one month later, his proposal for marriage was accepted, despite the fact that Jefferson was only two and a half years younger than Verena's mother. He was 36. She was 18. On February 26, 1845, they were wed in a simple ceremony in Natchez. Once again, no member of the Davis family was present. After a six-week honeymoon in New Orleans, the couple returned to Briarfield. Now married and a successful planter, Davis returned to politics. Having made a name for himself, he was selected to give the eulogy for recently departed Andrew Jackson. In that address, interestingly, again as to his destiny, he emphasized a well-known Jackson quote, The Union. It must be preserved. In November of 1845, one month after his 84-year-old mother's death, the Mississippi planter was elected to Congress and so headed, as British author Charles Dickens had written about Washington City, to the city of magnificent intentions. A clear Jacksonian, Davis was a state's rightist and strict constructionist of the Constitution. He backed President James Knox Polk and the idea of manifest destiny. So, when 11 Americans were killed, American blood shed on American soil, as Polk put it, just north of the Rio Grande in April of 1846, Davis not only supported the war measure, but when elected, accepted command of the 10 companies that constituted the first Mississippi. Verena did not want him to go and he promised her he would not. But he changed his mind, and by doing so, hurt her deeply. In command of 936 men, he shipped off for Brazos Island, where he drilled his blue-panted and red-shirted Mississippi rifles. And a curious twist of fate, their first great fight was in September of 1846. It was at Monterey, where he was under the command of his former father-in-law, Zachary Taylor. Though the 6,500 Americans were outnumbered, U.S. forces prevailed, and Davis and his Mississippians were prominent in the victory. After it, and made aware that his wife was ill, he obtained a 60-day furlough. Back at Briarfield in early November, he learned of his wife's true sickness. Verena was sick of the family talk that her husband was made by and still dependent on his brother Joseph. There was a maternal element as well. She was surrounded by nephews and nieces, but she had no children of her own. And then other issues. He was the first to return to Mississippi from the Mexican War and was showered with praise much to the chagrin and jealousy of others still at the front. Settling things at home, he again left for Mexico November the 20th. 
By February the following year, 1847, he and his rifles found themselves in another fight at Buena Vista. A force of 20,000 under Santa Ana fell on the Americans, who had one-third their number. Davis's command stopped one Mexican flank march, but in doing so, he took a musket ball to the right foot near the ankle. Refusing to go to the rear, he led his men in the repulse of a second force, Mexican Lancers, with the use of a creative and effective V formation. Though successful, his unit took the heaviest casualties, 39 killed, 56 wounded, 25% of his force. In his report, it is interesting to note that Davis made mention that his men were aided by artillery under the command of one Braxton Bragg. When Davis and his rifles came home in 1847, albeit only 376 of the 936 who left, Davis was heralded as a hero. The state Democratic Party made his orders at Buena Vista their motto, Forward Guide Center March. Though filled with pride, his wound continued to trouble him to the extent that he had to use crutches for the next two years. In truth, they were a badge of honor, and to reward their adopted son, Davis was selected to fill a U.S. senatorial vacancy. He was sworn in December 6, 1847, just in time for the sectional controversy that was the Wilmot Proviso. As to Mexico, he believed the Constitution followed the flag, so in his mind, slavery should be allowed in any new territory won from Mexico. And as to the peculiar institution, he traced slavery to the Bible. A firm believer that slavery was a positive good, and thought that without slavery and cotton, northerners would be economically devastated. With expansion to the Pacific, he watched as the new president, his former father-in-law, Zachary Taylor, pushed for California to be admitted as a free state. And if that occurred... Davis was very aware that the Senate would have senators from 16 free states and 15 slave. Threatened, Davis believed the beleaguered South had to create a united front. He wanted the Missouri Compromise Line extended to the Pacific and showing his true colors in debates leading to the Compromise of 1850, which he did not support, he consistently voted no to end the slave trade in D.C., no to the admission of California as a free state, and yes to a stronger fugitive slave law. He related to the Senate sentiments that most U.S. citizens felt at that time. He put it, I, sir, am an American citizen. I am a citizen of the United States. It is true because I am a citizen of a state. It was during this stressful time he came down with a herpes simplex infection of the cornea of the left eye. Battling its pain, Davis resigned his senatorial seat and returned to Mississippi to run for governor as a member of the state's rights wing of the Democratic Party. He lost, a sign that even Mississippi in 1850 moved cautiously. Out of office, he returned to private life and built a new home. 
The new Briar Field was a major step in signaling that Jefferson and Verena had moved beyond earlier problems. There the couple enjoyed the birth of their first child, a son, Samuel Emery Davis, in July of 1852. With 800-plus acres now in cultivation, the census of 1850 reported his land's worth at $25,000. By 1860... $75,000. Eventually, the owner of 113 slaves, valued at $80,000. Most, if not all, lived in slave cabins. For them, Joseph and Jefferson did construct a slave hospital, used slave juries for their peers, forbade corporal punishment, and acknowledged slave families. Davis believed the white man's Christian duty was to help the black man. After a two-year layoff, he, in 1852, returned to the political arena. Back in the fray, he promoted democratic reunification and campaigned for the native of New Hampshire, Franklin Pierce, who defeated the Whig candidate Winfield Scott in the national election of 1852. To express his gratitude, Pierce named Davis his Secretary of War. Now 45, and though racked with eye disorders, reoccurring malaria, and neuralgia, Davis was back in Washington City. With a staff of only 11, he oversaw over 10,000 in the United States Army. His drive and energy made him an excellent secretary. Technically innovative, he pushed for rifle production and ended smoothbore production in 1855. He improved the intellectual environment by introducing humanities to the curriculum of West Point, which in turn added another year for graduation. He had a new tactics manual written and sent observers to Crimea to study European military systems, and that included one George B. McClellan. Davis pushed for the exploration of the West, and investigated the feasibility of a transcontinental railroad. He even experimented with camels for use in the Southwest. He increased the existing military strength by adding four new regiments. Administratively, and foreshadowing his presidency, he paid attention to even the smallest detail, personally attending to all matters. However, there was one stumbling block, and it came in the human form of Winfield Scott. This, a carryover from the Mexican War. Davis blocked Scott's promotion to Brevet Lieutenant General, and the two, Secretary of War and General-in-Chief, nitpicked at one another over countless matters. After one tiff, Scott explained why he had not communicated. He wrote, My silence under the new provocation, has been the result first of pity and next forgetfulness. Compassion is always due to an enraged imbecile who lays about him in blows, which hurts only himself, or who, at the worst, seeks to stifle his opponent by the dent of naughty words. It became so bad that Scott moved his headquarters from Washington City to New York City. The duel of words, however, was nothing compared to an event in 1854. 
It was June 13th, and after exposure to measles, his little Samuel, not yet two years of age, died. He and Verena were devastated, but the blow was softened on February 25th, the next year, when Margaret Howell was born. And on January the 16th, 1857, Jefferson Jr. was born. The children were a blessing, but Davis was concerned about the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which had heightened the division of the country. His adopted state of Mississippi felt the crisis so keenly, they nominated and selected Davis to another senatorial term. On March the 4th, 1857, he tended his resignation to President Pierce as Secretary of War in the morning and walked to the Capitol to be sworn in at noon as once again a senator from Mississippi. The sectional crisis concerned him, and he feared the 1860 election would be, as he put it, an ordeal of fire. Firmly believing that, again, as he stated, African slavery as it exists in the United States is a moral, social, and political blessing, he encouraged no hiring of northern school teachers. He wanted southern authors for textbooks, and in the crosshairs of controversy, stress was a constant companion and his eye condition worsened. Pain, savage. So much so, he spent two months at a house in Washington City. His left eye by now clouded by a film. During the break, he did travel to New England. And interestingly, given all the sectionalism, received an honorary Doctor of Law degree at Bowdoin in Maine. Good news reached him April 18, 1859, when he learned a second son was born, but the blessed event was tempered. Verena wanted the child to be named William Howell to honor her family, but instead the child was named Joseph Evans to honor Jefferson's brother and a man whom Varina held in contempt. Their family's squabble seemed to reflect the nation as it staggered toward a national election. It was April 23, 1860, and the stage for the Democratic National Convention was in Charleston, South Carolina. After 57 ballots, the party still did not have a candidate. And interestingly, after 57 ballots, Jefferson Davis had received 57 votes for president by one delegate from Massachusetts, future Union general and radical Republican Benjamin Butler. Davis wanted Franklin Pierce, but that was a pipe's dream. Unable to reconcile sectional differences, the party split into nominations for a northern and southern candidate. Furthering the divisiveness, the Constitutional Union Party was formed. With his party split and the creation of a third party, Davis foresaw Republican victory and so tried to persuade Constitutional Union candidate John Bell Southern Democratic candidate John C. Breckinridge and Northern Democrat Stephen Douglas to all step down and give way to a mutually agreed-upon candidate. Douglas refused. And so, Lincoln and the Republicans won, and South Carolina made good her threat. She seceded. Though the Palmetto State acted December the 20th, 1860, Davis opposed secession 
as long as there was hope that Lincoln might seek compromise. It would not happen. Two days after Davis's emotional farewell to his senatorial colleagues, he learned he had been appointed Major General of the Army of Mississippi. He returned to the Magnolia State February the 1st, 1861, the first time he and his family had all been together since the fall of 1857. And then, eight days later, a messenger arrived. Davis was helping Verena trim roses. With delivered telegram in hand, he opened it. And while reading, Verena noted that he, in her words, looked so grieved. He shared the news as a man might speak of a sentence of death offered the presidency of the new Confederacy. He neither wanted nor sought the position. He had hoped for a major military or civilian role, but not this. Though surprised, he did not shirk the task. He turned to his wife and said he would begin preparations to leave for Montgomery, Alabama, the then capital of the Confederacy. Two days later, the 11th, the very same day Abraham Lincoln departed from Springfield, Illinois, Jefferson Davis made his way to Hurricane Landing on the Mississippi River. Slaves rowed him out to Mid-River, where he caught a steamboat bound for Vicksburg. He would not see Briarfield for seven years, and when he did return, he would not be a slave owner or a planter foreshadowing the logistical nightmare that would be the Confederacies during the war. It took him five days to reach the then capital, Montgomery. As he made his way to that capital, there were militia units and speeches in Vicksburg. The same in Jackson, Mississippi, where he officially resigned his general's commission and delivered a brief speech to those that gathered. To continue his journey, the provisional president-elect left Jackson via train and headed north to Grand Junction, Tennessee, then east through northern Alabama, north to Chattanooga, then south to Atlanta. Though he arrived in the Georgia town at the unchristian hour of 4 a.m. on February the 16th, there was a waiting crowd who wanted a speech. He complied, just as he had done in some two dozen other stops along the way from Jackson to Atlanta. None, however, were made in the state of Tennessee, which had not yet seceded. At each stop, he spoke about independence as a southern destiny, about peaceful separation, but acknowledged war if preservation of the Confederacy became a necessity. One reporter described his trip as one continuous ovation. From Atlanta, Davis moved to the rail junction at West Point, Georgia, and began the final leg of his journey. He arrived in Montgomery, Alabama at 10 p.m. on the 16th. There, a rolling thunder of artillery salutes and the buzzing of a great crowd who wanted a glimpse. And yes, yet another speech. He told them, our separation from the old union is complete. No compromise, no reconstruction can be now entertained. On Monday the 18th, the sun was out and the air balmy. 
At precisely 1 p.m., Howell Cobb of Georgia proclaimed, The men and the hour have met. Davis moved forward and began his inaugural address. Clearly and forcefully, he defined the Confederate cause. He proclaimed the new Confederacy, illustrated the American idea that governments rest upon the consent of the governed, and that it is the right of the people to alter or abolish governments when they become destructive of the ends for which they were established. In his mind, the Southern people had merely asserted a right which the Declaration of Independence of 1776 had defined to be inalienable, doubly justified by the absence of wrong on our part and wanton aggression on the part of others. There can be no cause to doubt that the courage and patriotism of the people of the Confederate States will be found equal to any measure of defense which honor and security may require. He went on to acknowledge the agricultural nature of the Confederacy and therefore wanted to engage in commerce with the freest trade which our necessities will permit. He spoke confidently, as he, like so many, believed the need for southern cotton was desperate. He went on to congratulate the new nation on its peaceful secession and birth. He noted that thus far there had been neither aggression upon others nor domestic convulsion. In closing, he offered a personal touch. He said, You will see many errors to forgive, many deficiencies to tolerate, but you shall not find in me either a want of zeal or fidelity to the cause that is to me highest in hope and of the most enduring affection. With so help me God, former U.S. Senator Jefferson F. Davis became the Confederate provisional president. We all know what would happen, but never once in his address did he call for war, maintaining, as he put it, our true policy is peace. When he concluded, martial demonstrations and raucous cheering began. Later, there was a reception where he shook the hands of countless well-wishers, the air alive with jubilant history-making. But he knew the coming months and years would be arduous, and said so in a letter to his wife recounting his inaugural day. He wrote, The audience was large and brilliant. Upon my weary heart were showered smiles, plaudits, and flowers, but beyond them I saw troubles and thorns innumerable. We are without machinery, without means, and threatened by a powerful opposition, but I do not despond and will not shrink from the task thrust upon me. The process to name him president began back on February the 4th, when delegates from six deep southern states met in Montgomery. As to their task of selecting a chief executive, they were aware that Davis brought political, military, and administrative experience. He possessed another coveted trait, moderation. He had never been a so-called fire eater. The delegates in Montgomery knew that and wanted a moderate leader who might be attractive to the upper south, border states, and to Europe. Therefore, Davis was on most of the delegates' short list, but he was not the only one considered. 
Georgia's size, location, and prominent men deserved consideration as well. Howell Cobb, a former congressman, governor, and U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, had been named the convention's president, but he made it clear that he did not relish the demands the presidency would require. Alexander Stevens was too conservative. He had spoken against secession, and on Georgia's first ballot in their secession convention, Stevens voted against the act. No question Robert Toombs coveted the presidency, but it was well known he also coveted alcohol. Then there was the South Carolinian Robert Rett Sr., who was one of the deans of the Fire Eater fraternity. A member of the South Carolina delegation to Montgomery, he was interested. Indeed, he thought the office might be his due, but not even a majority of his own state delegation considered him qualified. And William L. Yancey of Alabama, another fire eater, had supporters, but just not enough. Each state delegation had one vote. Four would constitute a majority. None just mentioned seriously challenged. Mississippi, Louisiana, and Florida all wanted Davis. He had a majority of the South Carolina delegation. Alabama embraced him after commissioners from that state returned from the Old Dominion where leading Virginians made it clear Jefferson Davis would be their choice. Georgians Cobb, Stevens, and Toombs canceled out one another. And so, on February the 9th, 1861, when the state delegations came together to vote, only one was nominated, Jefferson Davis. The vote, unanimous, as was Stevens of Georgia for vice president. The entire process took only half an hour. A quick word about Davis's vice president, Alexander Hamilton Stevens. He and Lincoln served in the House together. Both had been against the Mexican War. Lincoln stood at six foot four. Stevens was about five feet and weighed 96 pounds. Bony, shrunken chest, a wisp of brown hair on his head, deep-socketed dark eyes, and a sallow, mummified face, he was almost always in bad health. Eventually, when the Confederate capital moved to Richmond, and the war continued, Davis involved him less and less. It was not an intentional shun, but Davis did not consider his vice president a military resource. Still, as time would tell, by isolating a proud and sensitive man, Davis unintentionally created a future opponent, and that proved a disservice to the Confederacy. But that was all to be in the future. As of the 18th, the two had been unanimously elected and inaugurated. Now it was time to create a government, and Davis moved first to create a cabinet. It had to remind many of some 80 years earlier the creation of a government by 18th century American secessionists from Great Britain. A movement led then by Atlantic Coast Southerners, i.e. Virginians. Secession in this, this 19th century, was initiated by men who were from the Deep South, the new rich, 
No old-time Southern aristocracy or old-time Southern chivalry this go-round. The Confederate president and his provisional cabinet reflected humble beginnings. Davis had been born in a log cabin. His vice president raised on a non-slave farm, working at jobs usually reserved for African Americans. In Davis's cabinet, one individual, Judah Benjamin, who as it turned out would hold several cabinet posts, was the Jewish son of the keeper of a dried fish shop in London. Treasury Secretary Christopher Miminger was born in Germany and raised in a Charleston orphanage. The Confederacy's father, Neptune, Secretary of the Navy Stephen Mallory, was the son of a Connecticut Yankee and in Key West helped run his widowed mother's boarding house for sailors. John Reagan, the Confederate Postmaster General, was the son of a tanner and one-time plantation overseer. No, these men were not gentlemen farmers from colonial Virginia, but their goal was the same, independence and protecting the institution of slavery. In filling his cabinet, Davis had no political debts, but he did have geographic considerations. He wanted one man from each of the then seven states that comprised the Confederacy, save his own. He wanted men of ability. He selected first, then asked. Three said no. They were South Carolina's Robert G. Barnwell, Clement C. Clay, and William Lowndes Yancey of Alabama. Barnwell wanted a break from politics. Clay's health was poor, and Yancey did not want to be restricted in thought and action. Add Robert Toombs of Georgia as Secretary of State and Alabaman Leroy Pope Walker as Secretary of War. Jefferson Davis' provisional cabinet was not a particularly distinguished one, but it was representative of most U.S. cabinets that had been assembled before. General opinion was good. Now Davis entered an administrative role that in practice would be similar to his War Department days under Franklin Pierce. As Confederate president, he offered compensation for U.S. forts still in southern territory. He repeatedly called for moderation when he advised South Carolina Governor Francis Pickens. But when Lincoln ordered the resupply of Fort Sumter, Davis made his first major decision. On April the 10th, 1861, he gave General P.G.T. Beauregard permission to use force. It came at 4.30 in the morning of April the 12th. All too quickly, Montgomery proved too small and remote. Virginia's secession on April the 17th set in motion a May 20th vote to move the capital to Richmond. At 40,000 people, the 25th most populated city in the old Union was its 13th greatest manufacturing center, as evidenced by the largest flour mill in the world and the largest foundry in the South, Tredegar Ironworks. As president, Davis confronted two immediate problems, dealing with state-minded governors and trying to defend a vast confederacy. While doing so, he was active, visible, and realistic. Despite what has been written, he gave generals latitude in making decisions. However, depending on the general, sometimes that was good, sometimes bad. 
One of the latter, Leonidas Polk, was a weak field assignment and in September of 1861 violated Kentucky's neutrality. Davis could have revoked the decision, but he allowed it to stand. After all, Polk was on site. Back in July of 1861, Davis was actually on the battlefield at Manassas and conferred with the two victorious Confederate generals, Beauregard and Joe Johnston. After the battle and discussion, all agreed at that time pursuit of the Federal force to Washington City was out of the question. It may have been the last time all three agreed on anything. Soon thereafter, Joe Johnston became miffed that he was the Confederacy's fourth-ranking full general after Samuel Cooper, Albert Sidney Johnston, and Lee. Johnston argued that as brigadier general in the old army, he was entitled to higher Confederate status. Davis argued that Johnston's pre-war role as quartermaster general was a staff position, not a field or combat one. Yet Johnston disagreed. He felt he and his honor had been insulted. He wrote, I still rightfully hold the rank of first general in the armies of the Southern Confederacy. The wound between the two never healed. The other hero of Manassas was P.G.T. Beauregard, and who, between the summer and fall of 1861, wrote letters to reporters, friends, and congressmen blaming Davis for their decision not to pursue after the Manassas victory. That began their war-long estrangement. To Davis, both men put pride and ambition before their duty and commitment to the Confederacy. As a result, he never trusted them again, and that lack of trust was returned. Meanwhile, in Richmond, the Davis family on August the 1st moved to the corner of Twelfth and Clay, the so-called White House of the Confederacy. It was there, amidst the trials of leading a nation at war, there was some personal bliss. On December the 6th, another son was born, William Howell Davis, and the name this time pleased wife Verena. However, the new year, 1862, brought the harsh reality of war. In February, an unknown Union brigadier general by the name of U.S. Grant captured both Fort Henry and Donaldson in northwestern Tennessee. As a result, Nashville was occupied nine days later. To respond to the crises, Davis depended on an officer the commander of the Military Department No. 2, to rally Southern defense in the Confederacy's heartland. Davis believed Albert Sidney Johnson was the best man he had and wanted him to strike one of the converging Union columns that was heading south toward rail hub Corinth, Mississippi. Johnston did just that at Shiloh, and on the afternoon of the first day of battle was wounded and bled to death on the battlefield. To Davis, Johnston's death was, as he put it, irreparable. Privately, he wept. He blamed Beauregard for suspending Confederate attacks later that first day. With reverses in the Confederate West, there were cries for cabinet changes, and Davis was held accountable. He faced daunting challenges and realized, as a state rightist, he would have to wield federal power to wage war. One example of that was the call for conscription for all Southern men between the ages of 18 and 35. 
Davis also asked for suspension of habeas corpus. Congress, as they did with conscription, approved those measures. Though many have found fault with Davis's war leadership, it is a fact that the Confederate Congress never denied any major war legislation he requested. Still, within the Confederate Congress and amongst citizens who wanted the Confederate government to respect states' rights, cries arose that Davis was nothing more than a despot. He needed victories. But in April of 1862, another blow. New Orleans fell. When the president received the news, he buried his face in his hands. Like every president in this nation's history, Jefferson Davis's effectiveness was judged by the war's progress or lack of. That same month, Richmond was assailed, and with things going badly on several fronts, the criticism and suggestions were often ludicrous. For example, two senators suggested a plan to deal with George McClellan's Union force as they moved west on the Virginia Peninsula targeting Richmond. Their plan? Under the cover of darkness, 5,000 men would attack with bayonets. And to distinguish friend from foe in the night attack, the 5,000 Confederates would be completely naked and would therefore kill only those who were clothed. With suggestions like that, no wonder in April of 1862 that Davis was baptized into the Episcopalian faith. To him, it didn't help that the man then in charge of Richmond's defense was one he doubted, Joseph E. Johnston. Johnston returned that mistrust and compounded the ill will between the two when either he did not or refused to communicate with his commander-in-chief. The lack of communication was so bad that Davis was not aware of Johnston's Confederate eventual attack seven miles outside the Capitol at Seven Pines on the last day of May, 1862. And yet, despite their differences, when Davis was informed of Johnston's wounding that day, the president went to him, showed compassion. Though he did, he also realized he had to make a change in command. He selected one he did trust, a man by the name of Robert E. Lee. Unlike Johnston and Beauregard, Lee was deferential. He communicated. He was committed. And he was something that the heroes of Manassas were not. He was daring. With this foundation of trust, Davis approved of Lee's bold plans to not only defend Richmond, but drive McClellan away. And yet, with Confederate fortune on the rise in the east, there were more setbacks out west. News arrived on the same day as Johnston's wounding, May 30th, that Beauregard had withdrawn and given up Corinth, Mississippi. Yes, the withdrawal was indeed skillful, but Davis was disappointed that Beauregard had retreated at all. And with the falling back, the destruction of precious Confederate supplies in Corinth was appalling. At least, Beauregard, unlike Johnston, let Davis know. With low opinion of the Creole and simmering anger that the Army of Tennessee was paralyzed by his ill health, Davis accepted Beauregard's request for extended sick leave. He relieved Beauregard and promoted another whom he knew from West Point, one he felt was committed, honest, 
a doer rather than a complainer. And so, 45-year-old Braxton Bragg took over the reins of the Confederate Army of Tennessee on the 20th of June, 1862. At first, the native North Carolinian was brilliant. He moved the Army of Tennessee 800 miles from Tupelo to Chattanooga, then sidestepped Don Carlos Buell's federal force in central Tennessee and drove for Kentucky. And he did it all while keeping his president informed. The summer of 62 raised Confederate hopes on many fronts. Bragg drove for the Ohio River, and in the east, Lee put into practice a strategy Davis favored, one that was offensive-defensive. Although he never officially sanctioned Lee's first invasion, Davis thought it bold and approved. He liked it so much he even wanted to join the march, but upon reaching Warrington, Virginia, found he was too late. Of course, we know Lee's first invasion ended in Antietam, and we know that Mr. Lincoln changed the course of the war with the Emancipation Proclamation. Davis thought the measure desperate and hypocritical. No matter, Lee was turned back, and in the first weeks of October, so too was Bragg. It resulted in part because there were breakdowns over communication and coordination between Bragg and another Confederate general, Edmund Kirby Smith. In fact, that situation was a microcosm of what constantly handcuffed Davis. Confederate departments and command areas overlapped, and snafus were common. And to add to Confederate reversals out west, there was the disturbing news of personality clashes at the highest of command levels. From Leonidas Polk, the president learned there was dissent amongst Bragg and his officers. To try to check such nagging conditions, once the Army of Tennessee was safely back in the volunteer state, Davis summoned Bragg, Kirby Smith, and Polk to Richmond. After confiding with all individually and collectively, Davis perhaps made his worst military decision of the war. He allowed Bragg to remain in command. Davis remembered him from his West Point days and believed his commitment great, so much so that it blinded his ability to truly gauge Bragg's ability. And as if squabbles out West were not enough, he had problems within his official family. He wore out secretaries of war. Reverting to his days of detail as Franklin Pierce's secretary of war, Davis wanted his war secretaries to run all decisions, major or minor, through him. And then there was his inability to delegate. Though he had two personal secretaries and six personal aides, he preoccupied himself with detail and minutiae. 200 papers a day to the War Department were not unusual. His schedule, rigorous. He met with his cabinet two or three times a week, and each session lasted from two to five hours. A constant grind created great stress, and that triggered headaches, fevers, bronchitis, laryngitis, repeated eye infections, dyspepsia, and pneumonia. It seemed that cigars and vigorous horseback rides were his only outlets. In an effort to be visible to his citizenry and get out of Richmond for a while, December the 9th, 1862, he began a Western tour. It took him to Murfreesboro, Tennessee, northern Mississippi, Mobile, Montgomery, and Atlanta. 
At numerous stops, he made speeches. One, January of 1863, was made on his way back to Richmond, and that was in Raleigh, North Carolina. In all, his swing about the Confederacy lasted 27 days and covered 3,000 miles. While on the road, he learned of Lee's December victory at Fredericksburg, Virginia. And as 1863 began, of yet another retreat by Bragg's army from Stones River in Tennessee. And a classic what-if, he, in March of that year, ordered Joe Johnston to take command of the Army of Tennessee and wanted Bragg and Richmond to serve as a military advisor. It never came to pass, for Johnston professed that he was still recovering from his Seven Pines wound, and so the moment passed. It was in the East that gave Davis military hope, and that came from the spring successes of Lee. After victories at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, he planned a second invasion, and though Vicksburg was besieged, Lee's gamble to invade Pennsylvania met with Davis's approval. Even as his Army of Northern Virginia prepared to make its way, it was in the West where Davis, yet again, made another bad command decision. For the defense of the last great Confederate citadel on the Mississippi River, Davis placed in command a native Pennsylvanian, John C. Pemberton, who had never fought a major battle. Quite simply, Major General John C. Pemberton was no match for U.S. Grant and his lieutenants. They confused, outclassed, and outgeneraled him. And once the city was besieged, Davis tried to help, but he gave command of the entire area to one who had proved ineffective in taking the initiative. Joe Johnston proved to be a non-factor in the Vicksburg crises, and Davis contributed, for he designed a World War II-like theater command for a man who never seemed to grasp command responsibility. By the middle of July, defeat at Gettysburg and Vicksburg meant bitter criticism and soul-searching for Davis. Defeat brought out wolves like George's Robert Toombs, who called Davis a stupid, malignant wretch. The fire-breathing editor of the Charleston Mercury, Robert Barnwell Rhett Jr., got his shots in, too. He wrote that Davis's leadership was silly and disastrous. The misfortunes forced his hand for more unpopular measures. He expanded the years for conscription from 18 to 45 to allow planters to stay at home and produce foodstuffs and Confederate necessities, he pushed for the 20-slave rule, which excluded planters from service. That provoked the cry of rich man's war, poor man's fight. And with federal incursions, even the president and his family personally felt the burden of war. He and his brother's homes in Mississippi were hit a second time by federal forces. September of 1863 and Confederate victory at Chickamauga brought renewed hope, but that soured quickly when there was heightened dissension between Bragg and his lieutenants. In October of 1863, to try to resolve the bitter end fighting, Davis met yet another trip to the Western Theater. After listening to damning evidence and an almost unanimous call for Bragg's relief, Davis made one of his most mysterious decisions. He again 
left Bragg in command. Truth be known, Davis was torn. Lee would not leave the Eastern Theater for command in the West. The president did not trust Joe Johnston or Beauregard and knew that James Longstreet wasn't ready for a major command. And so he left Bragg in charge and in an effort to give him more reliable officers, allowed for the removal of those officers that Bragg denoted as detrimental to the service. Meanwhile, his month-long trip to the Confederate heartland continued, and despite the fact that the military situation in the Confederate West was desperate, Davis found enthusiastic crowds. In the third year of the war, there seemed to be two camps in the Confederacy, one that embraced national unity, and many more who treasured the politics of liberty. As I have maintained personally for years, Southerners made lousy Confederates, and Davis was in the vortex of that very dilemma. By November 21st, he was back in Richmond, and four days later, the picture in the West darkened. Word came of disaster in Tennessee. Bragg was routed off Missionary Ridge, driven away from Chattanooga, and forced to retreat into northwestern Georgia. The disaster moved him finally to relieve Braxton Bragg, and in doing so, he admitted it had been a mistake to leave him in command for so long. Once again, Davis asked Lee to go west, but both were concerned who would take over command of the Army of Northern Virginia. Lee truly believed this time he would be transferred. But on December the 16th, and with great trepidation by the Confederate president, Joe Johnston was ordered to take command of the Army of Tennessee. Bragg was ordered to Richmond to serve Davis as an advisor. By the spring of 1864, northern campaigns began to threaten the Confederacy on several fronts. Although substitutions and exemption policies were tightened, there came a new call for conscripts. Now, young and old would serve. New taxes were passed. And in the middle of it all, personal disaster. On the last day of April 1864, just-turned-five-year-old son Joseph was playing outside. He walked along the railing just outside the presidential mansion, lost his balance, and fell some 12 feet to the pavement below. With both legs broken and skull fractured, he died soon thereafter. Both parents were crushed. But May brought military realities that would not allow Jefferson Davis to dwell on his lost son. Now Lieutenant General U.S. Grant and George Gordon Meade crossed the Rapidan River on May 4th, and on the 7th, William Sherman began his push for Atlanta. Lee struck Grant and Meade in the wilderness, and Davis wanted Johnston to do the same in northwestern Georgia. But he continued to employ a Fabian defense, fall back, retreat, draw the enemy into the interior. And to make matters worse, Johnston continued his practice of not sharing information with his commander-in-chief. One Confederate general, however, had no problem about communication, and that was John Bell Hood, who coveted command and promised what Davis wanted to hear. Finally given command of the Confederate Army of Tennessee, Hood came out from behind fortifications and fought, and by doing so, assured that Atlanta would fall. 
As Sherman planned his next campaign, Hood took his still-intact army to Alabama and then north into Tennessee. Davis hoped that Confederate success in Tennessee would force Sherman to withdraw, and so to bolster sagging morale, he made his third trip out west in less than two years. This time, however, there were few cheers. To oversee and offer guidance, Davis sent Beauregard to oversee Hood, but like Johnston at Vicksburg, the Creole could not grasp this theater-like command. Therefore, he was ineffective. Out West, Davis, in his speeches, admitted military setbacks, called men back to duty, made a plea for support by women, and stressed that battles could still be won. Yet it was a matter of time. Inflation ran wild. A re-elected Lincoln refused to negotiate. And by March 13, 1865, desperation was so evident that by a majority of three votes in the House and one in the Confederate Senate, the Confederacy voted to accept black soldiers. Fearing the end, Davis sent his family to Charlotte, North Carolina. On the night of April the 2nd, Davis and the Confederate government joined the flight. Richmond was in flames, Lee in retreat, and the Confederate government in exile. From Danville, Virginia, Davis made his way to Greensboro, North Carolina, where he learned Lee had surrendered at Appomattox. It was also there in Greensboro that his official family broke rank. Some cabinet members acknowledged that resistance was useless, yet a defiant Davis wanted to resist in Charlotte, he learned of Lincoln's assassination and voiced regret. It was there he attended a service and found it interesting that the sermon was entitled, And Thus It Must Be. Headed for Alabama and Lieutenant General Richard Taylor's small Confederate army, it was May the 2nd, one month after Richmond's fall. In Abbeville, South Carolina, he met his wife and held a council of war. His audience was Secretary of War Breckinridge, his friend Braxton Bragg, and five disbelieving brigadier generals. After his message of continuing the fight, he asked for their counsel. They reinforced what Joe Johnston had told him back in Greensboro. The war was over. He rose and said, All indeed is lost. With a $100,000 reward for his capture, there was a frenzy of Union activity. And eight days later, the chase ended. It was near Irwinville, Georgia. The night before, he went to bed fully clothed. And early the next morning, in a drizzling rain, two units, the 4th Michigan and 1st Wisconsin, overtook his party and hemmed it in. Trying to slip away unnoticed, Davis wore a water-repellent cloak with wide, long sleeves and a black shawl that Farina had thrown over his shoulders. His capture was played up in the northern press, the Confederate president trying to flee in women's clothes. Story tore at his dignity. After serving as president for 51 months, he was now a prisoner. He was taken to Macon, Georgia, where Union soldiers taunted and jeered. His wife and children were sent to Savannah. By May 22nd, he found himself in Virginia and at Fort Monroe, where he was placed in a dank outer casemate. 
there while he waited for the new President Andrew Johnson and his new administration to decide his fate. He was harshly treated, profoundly depressed, and racked with illness. Inside the cell, a lamp which burned all day, all night. His guards who were there 24-7 had orders to keep him always in sight and not to converse with him. He had absolutely no privacy, not even when he relieved himself of waste. On May 23rd, after an ugly encounter with guards, there was an act of degradation. The officer in charge of his incarceration, Brigadier General Nelson Miles, ordered the former president of the Confederacy shackled. He tried to resist, but was pinned down by four men. After the deed was done, Jefferson Davis broke down and wept. Newspaper accounts forced public opinion, even in the North, and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton eventually ordered the manacles removed. Davis was indicted with treason, but Attorney General James Speed admitted that, in his words, any competent and independent tribunal would acquit Davis in a court of law. Chief Justice Salmon Chase advised similarly. Still, with the first racially integrated Pettit jury in U.S. history, his case was heard in May of 1867. The government held its charge of treason, but not ready to go to trial, the attorney general asked for a continuance. Back into purgatory he went. As his incarceration continued, public opinion morphed. Though he was not loved in the defeated South, he was respected. Many, in fact, felt he was being punished for them. And so Jefferson Davis became a martyr. In time, he also became a living symbol of what was to be deemed the lost cause. The suffering gathered attention worldwide, as evidenced on Christmas Day, 1866, when a crown of thorns arrived, sent by Pope Pius IX, who wove it himself. The political and public relations drama continued until May 13, 1867, when a writ of habeas corpus brought Davis back to Richmond. There, shortly after 11.18 in the morning, $100,000 was posted, and Jefferson Davis was freed on bail. Among those who made good that money were Northerners, Horace Greeley, Garrett Smith, and Cornelius Vanderbilt. Having never been brought to trial on Christmas Day, 1868, President Andrew Johnson granted him amnesty. Back in 1867, the very next day after his bail was posted, Jefferson and Verena left for Canada to be with their children. Though he was free, Davis's future was still a political football. Rationalizing his situation, rather than looking back, he chose to move forward. There would be trips to Europe. On February 26, 1869, he learned the still pending charge of treason had been dropped. Relieved, he decided to move on with his life. He refused donations and sought employment. At 61 years old, he became president of the Carolina Life Insurance Company in Memphis. And yes, misfortune still found him. In the fall of 1872, his son William died of diphtheria. There was now only one surviving son, 
Jefferson Jr., and he struggled at VMI, eventually withdrawing. And yes, he too was ill-starred. On October the 16th, 1878, Yellow Fever claimed Davis's last son. He was 27. Waiting through it all, Davis made more trips and accepted more positions, but around 1880, something happened that created rumor. A 48-year-old widowed admirer, Sarah Dorsey, took him in while Verena lingered in London from one of their trips. Verena learned of the situation when she read about it in the papers. Eventually, she returned, lived in Memphis, and finally acknowledged that Dorsey's intent was honorable. At Dorsey's home, Bevoir, Davis was not idle. It was 1881 he wrote and published his two-volume Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government. The first volume, 700 pages. The second, 800. It sold well, although many northern reviewers saw him as a man of the past, a man out of touch. And yes, after the war, when generals and politicians sparred over glory or blame, Davis was not immune to those who still wanted to take issue. He, Johnson and Beauregard, continued to spar. And there was a letter-writing exchange with William Sherman. And in 1885, a young, cocky New Yorker mentioned Jefferson Davis and Benedict Arnold in the same breath. That writer was Theodore Roosevelt. They say time heals. And it appears that held true for the former president of the Confederacy. In the South, his visits became cause for lost cause celebration, and visitors flocked to see him. Even men like Joseph Pulitzer and Oscar Wilde. By the middle of the 1880s, he had made five trips to Europe. His surviving daughter, Winnie, was even educated in Germany. In 1886, he made a sentimental journey back to his Kentucky birthplace. Three years later, in November, he took a steamboat to Briarfield. On the way, he became ill. Rallying for the visit, he wrote in a little girl's memory book, May all your paths be peaceful and pleasant, charged with the best fruit, the doing good to others. It was his last written message. On the way back to New Orleans, acute bronchitis set in, and the long slide began. On December the 6th, 1889, Verena sat at his bedside, held his hand. Every now and then, she felt a squeeze. At 12.45 a.m., she squeezed. It was not returned. Jefferson F. Davis thought himself, believed himself, a patriot, an American patriot. He thought the Confederacy would save the America he knew. His commitment to his country was total, just as complete as Mr. Lincoln's. And in a strange way, both were assassinated, Abraham Lincoln physically and Jefferson Davis in character. After the war, he repeatedly preached that Southerners should hold the Confederacy dear, but not allow it and the past to entrap them. As president, he lost the war, but never his belief 
or the cause. He never asked for a pardon. He never felt he had done anything wrong. That's why it would have been an awkward presentation had he been present October the 17th, 1978, when a young Mississippi congressman by the name of Trent Lott introduced a congressional measure and when passed by Congress, another Southerner, Jimmy Carter, signed it. The measure restored citizenship to Jefferson Davis. Had he been there, he would have remained true to character. He would have thanked Congressman Lott and President Carter and then would have refused it. With the scheduled convening of the 118th Congress first session slated for the 3rd of January 2023, it is appropriate we take a look at the 38th Congress passed a piece of legislation that is without question a landmark decision in the history of this country. We'll tell the story of the high drama behind its passage. Next time we gather the story behind the U.S. House of Representatives passage of the 13th Constitutional Amendment and its call for an end to slavery. Once again here at Threads from the National Tapestry are pleased, humbled by the kind support from those of you who listen. On this day, we welcome new patrons, Willie Hernandez from Oklahoma and Kelly Phillips from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thank you so very, very much for supporting what we want to do, and that is to bring accurate history to all of you. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by Bob Grasser, Raleigh Civil War Roundtable's editor of the Knapsack Newsletter and the Roundtable's webmaster at raleighcwrt.org. That's raleighcwrt.org.